Um, while you're opening the Second Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be looking at particularly verses 16 and 17. When I was a second-year Bible college student, I was about to study um, ancient Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was originally written in. If you didn't know that, it was not written in English. It was written in Koine Greek. And it was a pretty hard language to learn. They don't have that expression, it's all Greek to me for no reason. And so on the front flap of my very first Greek New Testament, I taped this note to encourage me because I knew this was just going to be tough sledding. And this is what that note was. This is what the note read. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read this book to be wise, believe it to be saved, and practice it to be holy. This book contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. In this book, heaven is opened and the fires of hell are quenched. Christ, its grand subject, and our good, its design. This book should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully, for this book is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all who trifle with its contents. For this book is the word of Almighty God. This book is the Bible. Now, three weeks ago, I, I sound a little hot from up here. Is it too blaring to you guys, the, vo the voice, the volume? That's okay. It sounds a little bit hot up here then. Okay, so three weeks ago, I made an assertion. I made the statement that God's word deserves our full attention, our full affections, and our full uh, uh, application in our lives. I said, in fact, that God's word, the good news, the gospel, is the thing that leads to our flourishing. The more our lives line up with it, the more we benefit from it. Now, in some ways, the world that uh, Paul and Timothy inhabited has changed dramatically from the world we live in today. And in two ways, in particular, the world has not changed at all, and that is our need for truth and our need for change. And I was reminded of this as I watched uh, somebody from our church, Sheila Checkley, told me I really ought to watch uh, this Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Anyone seen that? The Social Dilemma. So, so, so two things. I watched that do documentary this week, and I watched just a bit of the vice presidential debate. And in both instances, in varying degrees, right at center stage were the issues of truth and our need for change. Now, honestly, it was a bit weird watching a social documentary speaking so strongly for the need for truth in our lives, how important truth is. Social media has so warped our perception of, of life that there are now findings that directly link depression, anxiety, uh, civil unrest, even suicide proportionately to one's use, amount of use of social media. From false posts that exaggerate a blessed life to fake news or algorithms that boost echo chamber news to the far right or the far left to fringe and now mainline conspiracy theory groups. It is getting out of hand. So in this documentary, 
former employees, even former executives of Google, of Facebook, of Instagram, and Pinterest were all crying out for what they now call a humane use of technology. In other words, we need to be pursuing truth, and we all as a society have to change. Well, I thought that was really interesting. Because so much of the entertainment world, and that is what social media is, doesn't traffic in truth, they traffic in fictions. In something you want to be true, not necessarily is true. You remember Paul saying in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that the church is the household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So it stands to reason, we have to ask the question, if I am a Christian, what is my grasp of truth? And I don't mean political truth, I mean practical truth. If you are a Christian, do you have a good grasp of what is true? Do you have a good grasp of the truth? Truth to base your life upon. Truth to guide those who seek wisdom from you. Truth to guide your family. Truth that gives you strength, security, stability, confidence, and a foundation. Do you have truth in your life? What about change? You know, in our counseling class, we say, usually the first session, there is nothing more clear than our need for change, but there's nothing less clear in how that change is going to happen. What about change? Now, I know all of you are experts at change, at least how other people should change, right? We all know how others need to change. So let me personalize it. What about you? Do you need to change? Do you know how that change has to happen or what that change might look like? Truth and change, these are so critical that instead of just jumping into chapter 4 like we were supposed to, I wanted to step back one week and just revisit a topic that, that Tim actually touched on last week when he talked about the inspiration of Scripture, and I want to talk about it a little bit more And so that's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Just two verses that says a lot more than you might think. Let me me read those to you. You can look down on your copy of God's Word as well. Paul says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Right, that's where we get that word inspiration, Tim taught you. It literally means theopnuptos, the, the breath of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So again, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, why should we give our full attention? Why should we dedicate our intellect to God's word? Because it's God's very word to us, to change us and to equip us. Why should we give our affections, our love, our desire, our heart's allegiance to Scripture? Because it is God's very word to us, to change us and to equip us. Why should we give our application to God's word? Why should we submit our lives, conform our lifestyles to what Scripture teaches? Because it's God's very word to us, to change us and to equip us. So this morning, I just want to make two points from these verses this morning that are, that are based on the significance of what Paul is writing to Timothy. The first point is this. Number one, Scripture is truth. And number two, we need change, and God uses Scripture to change us. So those are the two points. If you're a note-taker, Scripture is truth. And two, we need change, and God uses Scripture to change us. Let's look at them one at a time. The first one, Scripture is truth. Now, if you're a Christian, um, that's probably not surprising for you to to hear that. You probably, I hope you agree with that. But that is an increasingly shocking thing for people to hear in our world today. 
I mean, it might be one thing to say that the Bible is true. People will give you that because, after all, uh, the Quran is true to Muslims. The Book of Mormon is true for Mormons. Torah is true for the Jews. So why shouldn't the Bible be true for Christians? But that's not the claim we're making, is it? That's not the claim the Bible makes for itself. To say that the Bible is truth is a bit of a stretch. That's a claim many people are uncomfortable with making. In fact, that's just one of three claims that the Bible makes about truth that's actually pretty shocking in our uh, increasingly relativistic world. We're going to look at three of those claims that the Bible makes. Number one, that truth exists. Truth exists. Let me read to you what Jesus says in one of his last prayers from John 17. He says this, in his prayer to God the Father, he says, sanctify them, he's speaking of, of believers in him, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. You see, it was Jesus himself who makes the claim that scripture is truth. He doesn't say your word is true. He's saying God's word is truth itself. In other words, God's word is not true because it somehow conforms to some other standard of truth. It itself is the standard of what truth actually is. It is the standard by which all other truth claims must conform. So much so that the Bible actually refers to itself as the word of truth. Psalm 119 verse 43. The psalmist prays, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your law. Ephesians 1.13, Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writes to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And finally, James writes this in James 1.18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, this is an important thing to say, uh, an important distinction to make. The, the Bible is, when we say that the Bible is truth, Scripture is truth, you may say that to some people and they go, well, that, that, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit their categories because what we're not saying is that the Bible covers and explains every single conceivable fact that there is. Like the Bible will never tell you that we live in a heliocentric universe, right? As a matter of fact, we're starting to discover we actually don't live in a heliocentric universe because our solar system circles around something else. But we'll talk about that later. The point is, we used to think we lived in a geocentric universe, right? That everything's revolved around the planet. Then we realized because of Copernicus that we lived in a heliocentric universe and everything changed. And now we realize that actually our solar system itself is spinning around something else. So we're not even in a heliocentric universe. The point I'm getting at is you're not going to figure that out when you look at, oh, uh, Chronicles 13 says we're in a heliocentric universe, right? So when we say scripture is truth, someone says, no, that's not true because it doesn't contain all those facts. There is a difference between facts and truth. And the reason I want to tease this out is, as I said three weeks ago, speaking to a college professor from our church who teaches philosophy and literature as religion, or religion of the Bible as literature, we live in an epistemological crisis. People have no idea how to know things anymore. And what I mean by that, and what he means by that is, the process by which you understand things and have certainty, we just don't know how to have reasoned conversations. We don't know how to process through things, and we're seeing that all over our culture. One example of that, and I'm completely off the rails from my notes here, is this 
this idea that, that facts, tr facts are truth. And we see that most when people make claims, and it's become a religion today, that science is the answer for everything. Now, I, I want to be careful here because this can kind of fall along political lines, but there's this view that because you disagree with certain things, you don't believe in science, and then, then the answer is you believe in science, and therefore you're right. Have you heard something along those lines? The, there's a problem with that. Science is not designed to teach truth, friends. Okay, And the fact that people think it is, it exemplifies the problem we have as a society. Science, understood, understood as what it is, is merely information, uh, knowledge of the material physical world that we've obtained through observation of facts and experimentation. That's science. Okay? Knowledge we have of the physical world that we've obtained through observation and experimentation. No problem with that. No problem with that. Nobody should have a problem with that, right? But that's not what the world we live in. We live in a world of what's called scientism. And scientism believes that only the hard sciences have the intellectual authority to teach us knowledge of reality. That's really different than what science is. Science is understanding the physical world because we observe facts and phenomena through observation and experimentation. That's what science is. Scientism says the only way you can know anything is through the hard sciences. That's a fundamental misunderstanding between the difference between facts and truth. The Bible isn't interested in giving you all the facts of everything. The Bible is interested in giving you truth. Science traffics in facts, but truth is not the same as facts. Let me explain the difference. The difference between facts and truth would be the difference of a pile of wood, some pavers, and stucco, and this beautiful building around us. Facts would be piles of wood and stucco and pavers and all these things, but truth is the proper organization of those facts. Truth is about meaning, purpose, ends, and goals. The two are not the same. Facts are just items of knowledge. Two plus two equals four. The law of non-contradiction, the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. Truth is the interpretation and the purpose from those facts. That's a huge distinction that we have lost in our culture. Knowing truth is about knowing how to interpret the facts correctly. Jesus claims that God's word is truth because scripture alone can correctly interpret the facts of life. When Jesus is saying scripture is truth, what he's saying is that God's word alone is the means by which we interpret all the facts of life correctly. It's not intended to give you all the facts of life. That's why we have things like science and observation. But it's scripture alone, God's perspective, that allows you to interpret the facts correctly and put them in their teleological, their purposeful means and ends. This is why theologians for centuries have talked about the inerrancy of scripture that there is no mistake within the scriptures that are wholly reliable, and the infallibility of scripture, that scripture can never lead you astray. So truth exists because God's word is truth. Do not to be confused with saying that the Bible contains every fact that there is about this physical world, because the two are not the same. Does that make sense? Right? One, you could say, is just a matter of observation and hard sciences. The other is the role that philosophy played, and, and philosophy is the handmaiden of theology, historically speaking. So point number one, truth exists. 
We got to be clear on that. Number two, truth is knowable. First Timothy chapter two, verse four, Paul says this, speaking of God, who desires that all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Helping Timothy understand how to deal with kind of cantankerous people, he says in 2 Timothy 2.25, correcting your opponents with gentleness so that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Titus 1.1, Paul says, Paul himself, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. This second point is closely tied to the first. Because Scripture interprets the facts of life correctly, the more you know of Scripture, the more you can know the truth about life. Let me say this. To the degree that you're interpreting your life through Scripture, you'll know truth. And to the degree you don't, you'll be in error. Can I tell you something that we all know psychologically? Every single one of you here, including myself, we go through life with filters. I don't mean Instagram filters, so you got bunny ears and all that. You know what I mean? I mean, we all go through life with filters. And we interpret everything in this life through those filters. Which is why when you walk into a room and nobody talks to you, you are interpreting that silence one way. As opposed to walking into a room and everyone talking to you, you interpret that activity another way. The question I want to ask you is, do you even know what your filters are? Are they your past experiences? Are there your hopes and expectations that you've gotten from your own desires and dreams to the degree they don't line up with Scripture? You're going to be walking through life in all kinds of wonky ways, is what Scripture teaches. Is Scripture the lens, the filter by which you interpret everything that's going on, or the expectations of your peers, your past experience with your family, what you want to have from a situation? The two are not the same. And to the degree you interpret life through the filter of Scripture, to that degree you'll walk in truth. To the degree you don't, you'll be walking in error. The good news is truth is knowable because it is here with us. Finally, last third point on this issue. Number one, truth exists. Number two, truth is knowable. And probably the most shocking thing to hear, truth is a person. John 14, chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Revelation 19.11 says this, Then John writes, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Friends, this is the amazing thing. Truth is not an abstract thing. Truth has a relational quality to it. That's why we can make the statements like, Truth is beautiful, and we all get what I mean by that. No one says, uh, uh, Arithmetic is beautiful. Or algebra is beautiful. Certainly not my daughter, right? She doesn't think it's beautiful. But nobody says arithmetic is beautiful. It seems so incoherent to say those things because truth has a relational aspect to them. Two plus two, that's, that, that's not beautiful equal four. That's just a fact. That's just a, a, an object in the mathematical world. But when you bump up against truth, there's an inherent beauty to it, an inherent goodness to it because it's relational. Because at the end of the day, truth is a person. That's why if you have any sense of moral compass, Christian or not, there should be and ought to be a draw to things that are beautiful, good, and true. Just as there should be a natural repulsion against things that are ugly, error, and evil. 
because there's a relational quality embedded in them. And here's the reality we have as we look at Scripture. We have it in our hands. You have it in your hands. You have them on your phone. Hopefully you have it in your mind and on your hearts as well. And Scripture is breathed out by God. History records for us uh, John Calvin. Some of you may not know him. John Calvin was a theologian and a statesman. His, his most biggest contributions was theologically his Institutes of the Christian Religion. I think it's like 700 pages long. It's a massive tome. And, and one of his most uh, practical political contributions is his implication of the Christian faith to institutions and social policy in Geneva, which I believe led to the modern city that we have today in Geneva, Switzerland. He took the fact that Scripture is breathed out to God literally in his teaching ministry, so much so he spent five years teaching his congregations throughout Geneva through the book of Acts. He preached 46 sermons on the book of Thessalonians. He preached 186 sermons on the book of Corinthians, 86 in the pastoral epistles. To give you a comparison, we're doing 25. He preached 43 sermons in Galatians, 48 in Ephesians, another 159 on Job, 200 in Deuteronomy, 353 in Isaiah, and 123 in the book of Genesis. Friends, here at Christ Community Church, we do the same thing. Not nearly as long as John Calvin, obviously, but what we do is we want Scripture to guide everything we're doing. We want to understand the teaching of Scripture because it is truth. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do topicals here. As a matter of fact, um, this every summer we do a topical. We just did a topical on the work of Christ. This next coming summer, we're going to do a topical on a biblical understanding of marriage. The point, though, our main diet is to go through books of Scripture. Because it's, it's, it matters. Friends, if you are looking for a church, and I know we have some people looking for churches or they can't be at their church because it's shut down right now, a question you need to ask yourself is how do they treat the Bible? Are they actually preaching the Bible? And I don't mean to say are they preaching from the Bible, like they use the Bible as a springboard to jump into something of their own personal hobby horse, I don't even mean if they're pe preaching top biblical topics, because you can preach biblical topics and still not preach the Bible. That's the problem with behaviorism and moralism. The question is, are they preaching the Bible itself? That's really important because of what Paul says here. Look at what he says. Because Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, look at those words. Teaching, uh, reproof, correction, tr uh, training in righteousness. Those all strongly imply change, don't they? They imply improvement. They imply growth. And that brings us to our second point. So scripture is truth, and we need, the second point is we need change, and God uses scripture to change us. Now this is getting to the, the heart of what I was talking about, of how scripture, God's word, demands our full attention, our affections, and our application. Now let me just give you a disclaimer here. I'm using those words, and this is important for the next point I'm making, so hang with me. I'm using those words as like anchors that, that are carrying more conceptual weight. So attention, I'm using that as a word to talk about our intellect. We're all beings of intellect. We're rational beings. We have that. Our affections, I'm talking about our emotions, right? We're all emotional beings. Our apl application, I'm talking about our, um, our volition. In other words, we're beings that have will. So our attention, our affection, our application is our intellect, our emotions, and our, and our volitions, right? It's all of who we are. 
uh, our, our rational, our experiences, our will, all those things. I'm, so I'm using those three terms to try and capture all of our human experience. Scripture changes us as the central message of Scripture being God's grace per- permeates and penetrates us. Let me say that again. Scripture changes us as the central message of God's grace penetrates us. But a lot of times, I see this happening, a lot of times when we become a Christian, the the focus becomes not the central message of God's grace, but an aspect of what grace does inside of us. Let me explain what I mean. In other words, grace will transform you intellectually, emotionally, volitionally. When I got saved, man, that, that was the biggest thing. My mind just like came awake. Uh, it was amazing. The, my salvation, that was the, the most significant evidence of regeneration in my life. I was actually thinking about things. I told you how I failed a true and false quiz, right? Because I spelled the answers wrong. Yeah, yeah, th- that not so good, right? So, so uh, when I became a Christian, the thing that came alive was my mind. Scripture, grace will transform us intellectually, intellectually. Uh, I'm thinking about my GPA in high school right now, just to kind of give evidence of the fact. But it was just, okay, let's put it this way. Out of a graduating class of 700, I was 696, okay, just to give you evidence of that. But so, but it was a slow change, but a change nonetheless. It transforms us. Grace transforms us intellectually. Grace transforms us emotionally. Grace transforms us volitionally, how we live our lives. But... We can confuse that transformation with grace itself and then suddenly misunderstand the core message of Scripture. So let me, let me back up here because I know I, this is a deep dive, right? I haven't preached for two weeks, so I'm like throwing everything in here. When we become Christians, man, grace enters us. We get transformed. But if we're not careful, we can confuse the transformation, the results of grace for actual saving grace itself And then we begin to use that transformation as a metric to gauge our own maturity, or worse yet, the maturity of other people around us. Does that make sense? So so something happens in your life, and you're like totally transformed, and now you think that's the metric that, that, that determines whether or not I'm a Christian or anyone else is a Christian, when in fact that's just the result of grace, but not necessarily grace itself. So let me illustrate that for you. So some people become Christians. And, and, and I'm going to call them the doctrine people, right? And, and they're usually the very intellectually, they're, they're like really smart people. They get saved, and man, you might find them in a Presbyterian church or a Reformed church. Their intellect is all on fire for Jesus, right? So let's call them the doctrine people. Other people become Christians, and man, their full affections are given to the Lord. They have these amazing experiences. Their, their emotions are on fire. I call those the devotion people, and you may find them in like Pentecostal churches or an Assembly of God churches, right? They're high on experiencing and feeling Jesus. So you've got the doctrine people, really into theology, and they relate big books and talk about things and maybe smoke a pipe or something, right? You've got the, the devotion people. They're always talking about how you feel, and man, you feel the Spirit, and they got the devotion of the Lord. There's a third group of people, when they, when they get saved, man, they give their full application to the Lord. Their wills, they're going to, they're, they're the volition, they're, their obedience, they're going to give it to God. And that might be like the Baptist or the, the Calvary Chapel types, right? Now, I want to be clear on something. Not any one of these are not necessarily bad. And in fact, I'm using the stereotypes, right? If you know people in Calvary Chapel or, or a Baptist church or Presbyterians or Pentecostals, 
there's, there's actually something they excel at at that one thing that I'm caricaturing, right? So that's actually a good thing. But what I'm trying to illustrate is that if we're not careful, there can be a strong downside to that transformation. In other words, people can think that Christianity is primarily knowing more or having better feelings or experiences or behavioral change. And then, like I said, unknowingly judge themselves or others about it. It goes something like this. I know a lot of theology now, so I must be a mature Christian, right? Or, man, I'm feeling so good. God must love me, right? Or I'm living this way. I'm obedient, so I must be a mature Christian. And the downside of that goes like this. Well, I know more than you, so that obviously means I'm more mature than you. I have better experiences with the Spirit than you. You don't speak in tongues? Well, then, hmm. I must be a more experienced or better Christian than you. Or, I behave better than you. I say you live, so I'm obviously more mature Christian than you. You see how in each of these, there is a kernel of truth in them, but they're all taken by themselves wrong. Because they take the emphasis away from God's merciful, saving work in our salvation and places the emphasis on us. However good that emphasis might be, knowing more, loving more, obeying more, it's still about us doing more. And that's not grace. That's works, friends. It's just works that sound good. You see, we we take a transformative aspect of grace, and if we're not careful, we think that itself is what grace is. Friends, if we just needed more knowledge, God would have sent the professor. If we we just needed more emotional connection, God would have sent us a therapist. If If we needed more obedience, God would have sent a police officer. But we need something fundamentally more than all these things, so much more. We need rescue. And so God sent us a Savior. Because we need more than knowledge. We need more than emotion. We need more than obedience. We need rescue. And that's what grace is. And and by the way, by the way, it it doesn't mean that, how do I get out out of this tangled thing I got into? Friends, if if you know enough of Scripture, so you doctrinaire people, if you know enough of Scripture, you should know enough that knowing enough Scripture is not enough but to be like Christ and to love him. And, and if you have a lot of emotional experiences as a Christian, you ought to know how fickle those emotional highs can be and that you need something more substantial to build your faith upon. And if you obey enough, you know how hard and difficult and quite frankly, how dry mere obedience need and you, you long to have desire in your heart to be changed. And so the first thing we got to do, and I'm primarily speaking to a Christian crowd here, so the first thing we got to do is figure out which one you are, right? Now, you may have a bit of all of them, but there's a good chance that you're probably one of them. Are, are you the doctrinaire people? Are you the devotion people? Are you the duty people, right? Do you tend to think too intellectually about your faith and not about, man, how, how are my relationships? How am I, am I emotionally strong? Do I have a good emotional vocabulary? How are these relationships, right? Knowing all the theology, but having your relationships crash in a ditch is pointless, right? Are are you too emotional about your faith? It's all up and down all over the place, and you're looking for the next conference or camp or retreat to go to because it gives you that charge, right? You need something more substantial to build on. 
Are, are you a duty person? It's all about obeying the letter of the law. Darn it, I'm going to love God all the time. Mm, and I'm going to be mad about it too, right? I mean, which one are you? That's the first thing you need to do. The second thing is allow Scripture to teach, reprove, correct, and train you by focusing on grace. When it says train you in righteousness, I, I insert this, how do we do that? Well, what's that mean? By focusing on grace. Friends, when you realize that the engine of your Christian life is not knowledge, it's not theology, it's, it's not emotions or experience, it's not even obedience, but the amazing grace of God displayed to us through the astounding work of Christ on the cross. Do you know what happens when, when your mind is riveted on what the gospel teaches and the implications of the gospel? That a holy, righteous, loving God would die for an unrighteous rebel like yourself. I've, heard, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The two things you need to understand to understand the gospel, and they seem contradictory, but you've got to hold them in balance. Christianity is a, is a mess of paradoxes. Here's another one. If you, you know you understand the gospel, when you understand and truly believe, you are more wicked than you ever believed. And you know the good thing about that? Right? I, 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 I know people are going to say, well, you don't want to teach that because your self-esteem is going to get crushed, and that's horrible. But no, 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 we're going to balance it out. When you believe that aspect, man, every time you read the Bible about how to be different, you're going to be dialed in. When, when you are singing songs of God's love to you, you're going to feel it because you know you didn't deserve it. When someone has to correct you, you don't get all defensive. You're like, brother, you don't know that happened. Let me tell you the other things that's wrong with me that you don't even know about, right? Because you know you're more evil and wretched and selfish than you've ever imagined. That's the first part. But you also got to believe the second part just as much for this to work. And that's you're more loved than you ever dared dream. Because you know that no matter what, God loves you. So when you get corrected, you don't have to have your identity in. That's not true. I'm a good person. I do these things. Or I'm a good husband. I, I, I do the laundry or whatever. You don't have to defend yourself. You go, yes, that's me. I'm sorry, honey. I'm selfish. Because I'm more loved than I've ever dreamed. I don't have to worry about that. You see, you've got to understand both sin and grace to understand either sin or grace. That's how this works. And when you meditate on the gospel, this is what happens. You want to know more about that truth. What am I referring to? And you're like, I've got to study this amazing God. You want to experience that reality. You want, I want to know more of how that changes me. You want to live to please the one who loved you and sent his son to die for you. So by focusing on the grace we have in the gospel, guess what? Your, your intellect changes. Your emotions get stirred, get warmed up, and you desire to live a life different, not because you have to, but because you get to. That's number two. Number three, we've got to wrap it up. Number three, this is, this, is, this is not a pitch for church membership, but it's not not one. Let the church do its work. What I mean by that is this, friends. When you think about the way God ordered the church, all three of these things are getting hit all the time, aren't they? The cognitions, the teaching of the word of God, your mind's being renewed. The relationships around here are stretching your ability to love, care, forgive, be long-suffering, forbear, right? The very reasons people leave churches are the very reasons God gave us churches. Oh, you got offended? Good. 
Because you're a sinner, they're a sinner. Now work it out in grace. Don't leave and go to the next church down the street. But the church allows for that context of relationships and emotional strengthening. Not to mention the singing, right? The singing of the songs. Guys, if you like, don't watch me, but if you watch me, I'm often crying. Or at least doing this, right? Trying to be manly, like, no, I'm not crying. I'm just punching my palm, my eye, my palm face, and my, you know, I'm punching myself. Because I get moved. Watch Tim, because he cries all the time. So watch Tim. His emotions get stirred, and that's good. And then finally, in a church, we're accountable to one another. We submit ourselves to the discipline of the church elders, quite frankly, and the congregation. You've seen us do church discipline, some of you. It's not because we're bored and have nothing better to do. It's because our lives matter and we have to live a certain way. And so by being part of the church, all three, the cognitions, the emotions, the volition, is all getting conformed and changed. This is exactly what Paul wrote to the Colossians. I'm going to end with this because I ran out of time. Colossians 3.16. And see if you can hear the, the attention, the affections and application, or the cognitions, the emotions, and the volition, right? The, the intellect, the desire. You, you know what I'm getting at. And they're not exactly in the order you might think, but they're all there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, attention, and admonishing one another, application in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness, affections in your hearts to God. Friends, it's in the gospel. The gospel is God's gift of truth and change. We need to embrace it. And this sets us up for chapter 4. We'll get into next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and what a gift you gave us. And we need it. We're living in a world where truth is up for grabs. It's unknown. People are floundering. They need it. Or when I hear executives from Google or Pinterest or Facebook say, we need truth. I'm like, it's right here in your word. Father, help us to who those who are part of the church the pillar and buttress of the truth, embrace it, to know it, to be consumed by it, not just intellectually, but affectionately in our emotions and, and the way we live. Thank you that it exists. Thank you that you have made it known to us that you have not left us as orphans without guidance or care, but you've given us your word. And it instructs us. And thank you for the opportunity to gather weekly, to be instructed, to be trained by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cclh.org.